I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. In the 1950s, a U.S. Navy engineer named Frank Watlington was trying to record Russian submarines. It was the height of the Cold War, and the U.S. government had built a top-secret listening station where Frank worked with a hydrophone, an underwater microphone, off the coast of Bermuda. But Frank's gear kept picking up something else. These eerie, beautiful sounds. They weren't submarines. They were humpback whales. The story goes that Frank tried to hide the recordings at first, afraid commercial whalers would use them to track and hunt the humpbacks, who were already on the verge of extinction. But word about the recordings got out, not to whalers, but to acoustic biologists Katie and Roger Payne. In 1967, they traveled to meet Frank and hear his recordings. And that's when a discovery was made. Hold up, off the coast of Bermuda, listening to these whale recordings, the biologists realized they were hearing patterns. Rhythmic, repeated vocalizations. The whales were singing. This is Katie Payne, one of the biologists. All the whales, all the males in a breeding population are singing pretty much the same song at the same time. And all of those themes had the same basic structure, and all the whales were agreeing on it. This was the moment that modern science identified whale song. Which is a pretty amazing thing. Wanting to share these sounds with the world and hoping they might help whales rather than hurt them, Roger Payne, Katie's husband, convinced Frank to team up with the couple and produce an album of recorded whale song. Released in 1970, Songs of the Humpback Whale is a five-track voyage through whale vocalization. It quickly sold 25,000 copies, then 100,000 copies, then went multi-platinum. It now stands as the top-selling environmental album in history. And it did what the scientists hoped. Songs of the Humpback Whale is credited with raising awareness of the intelligence and culture of whales, helping ignite the Save the Whales movement, which, in turn, led the United Nations to institute a 10-year global moratorium on commercial whaling. It's been 50 years since the release of that album, but Katie Payne, she's still just as awestruck by the mysteries of whale song as she was that day in 1967 when she first heard it. I'm AC Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, we've got two stories about humans forging connections with animals. Coming up, we'll visit the Bow Valley Wolves, 
a wolf pack struggling to survive in Banff National Park. The wolf will smell its prey first. Upwind, kilometers away. Elk, deer, moose. A wolf will know. But first, Whale Song 101. Since I was a kid, I, I've had dreams about whales. And I still have dreams about orcas and other whales and dolphins. This is Lindsay Dobbin. They were the curator of the 2020 Nocturne Art at Night Festival in Halifax. Fifty years after the release of Songs of the Humpback Whale, Lindsay had an idea. They invited Katie Payne and her collaborator, musician Daniela Gesundheit, to help guide a workshop as part of the festival, teaching a group about whale song. Katie had done versions of this workshop before, but this time, things were a little different. This group was made up entirely of musicians who were brought in and taught about whale song, its history, its processes, but then invited to make their own compositions inspired by whales. This is a story about whales and what humans, biologists and musicians, maybe all of us, can learn from them, how they create and how they communicate. We're going to follow one of the musicians from that workshop, Nicole, as she learns from Katie and the whales. My name is Nicole Rampersad, and I'm a trumpet player. Yeah. I was born and raised in Toronto. I grew up in Scarborough. My parents are both from Guyana, so I'm a first-generation Canadian. I was a petrified kid, you know, did not participate in any extracurriculars. And the band teacher at the time sort of managed to get me into the band. I don't know how. And I picked the trumpet because, again, I go back to that petrified part of me. Like, I was like, I don't want to screw this up. So I'm going to pick the what I thought was the easiest instrument. And how I judged what was the easiest instrument was literally on its look. So, you know, if I compare it to the clarinet, oh, there's too many parts, too many buttons, I'm going to screw that up. I saw the music teacher put a mouthpiece into a horn and there's three buttons. I'm like, that's the one. Little did I know what I was getting myself into, but uh, yeah, that's how I got into the trumpet. And, you know, I played in public school bands, eventually thought, well, this is something I'm good at. I'm not good at much, but I'm okay at this. And did my undergrad at the University of Toronto and then my master's uh, in Boston at uh, New England Conservatory. Practicing the trumpet is this never-ending game of not getting worse on the instrument. So, whereas with other instruments, it's like, okay, I'm I'm practicing to get better. There's definitely an element of that. Um, but most of your practice is like this fight to not get worse at the instrument, to not lose 
muscle memory, right? Uh, and so that's like, that's an interesting mindset to sort of be in always. So, I mean, I love the instrument. And at its core, it's a simple instrument, but it's just really hard to play. <laughs> Improvisation is a main part of my practice. Um, I've been an improvising musician for well over 15 years at this point. Went to school for jazz and that, you know, improvising is a big component of that. And it's, it's about, you know, finding connections between people. And that's something that's um, very important to me in, any, in all aspects of, of my practice. You have to be open-minded. You have to be present and just trust that your pool of experience and knowledge will help you navigate, right? And, and find whatever it is. Um, it's the beauty of experimenting, right? You don't know. The times where I've felt the least satisfied, I guess, um, or least fulfilled in an improvised setting um, is when there's been no listening. So either I'm not listening, you know, I'm, I'm in my head, I'm, you know, like, ah, uh, ooh, I'm really, really not playing well or, or what have you, or you get that energy from someone else. You know, someone holds steadfast to whatever agenda they have, right? And they, they try and force that through. At its core, it's when you're, when you're not listening, it doesn't go well at all. So Lindsay Dobbin sent me a message on Instagram, just seemingly out of the blue, and it was one line. It says, Nicole, do you like whales? And I responded within two minutes with a long paragraph, you know, saying, oh my God, Lindsay, I love whales. Every time I'm in their presence, I weep like a baby. I'm so overwhelmed. Jeez, where to start? Um... There's just something about them that just feels so generous. I don't know how else to put it. Um, if I think specifically of the times where I've gone whale watching, and I've been twice now since moving to New Brunswick, you know, you're on this boat and you're just roaming around the Bay of Fundy, you know, hoping to, to see a whale, and it's just this anticipation, and, you know, it's not a guarantee, and when they finally do reveal themselves to you, it's, it's just, there's just this joy, I guess. Just being, you know, a few feet away from uh, a finback whale, I lost it. I mean, I just love being out in the ocean. It's, it's the best place ever. Um, so anyway, that was my response. Um, and uh, a few weeks later, I get an email from Lindsay asking if I wanted to be involved uh, in this project. And... Needless to say, it was a resounding yes. <laughs> I'm always working to be a better listener, you know. Um, that's a lifetime endeavor for me. Whether I become a whale at the end of it, I'm not sure. And if I do, I don't think that's a bad thing, you know. <laughs> I don't feel like a much of a musician or much of a biologist, but at times I feel like a whale. <laughs> so Katie Payne was gracious enough to offer her time and her expertise 
with whale song in this workshop. And it was just really an enriching experience to hear her experience researching whale song. She spent decades researching, recording whale song. And in doing that research, she was able to discover that there's form in there and that it's not just communication, like it's, it's song. If it was 50 years ago, and almost nothing was known about the lives of whales, where would you start? You'd probably start the way people start with your eyes. On the top of a tall ship, <clears throat> you climb up into the upper reaches and you look all around for some signal of the life of whales. But what are you looking for? They're underwater creatures. What you're looking for is just little spouts. They're breathing because they're mammals. They stay underwater for 10 to 20 minutes and then they come up and heave a great sigh, exhaling used air and taking in fresh air, and then down again. And if all eyes on the ship are looking in all directions, you may be very, very lucky and think that you've seen a whale. But in fact, you're using the wrong one of your senses. Best way to learn about them as we my husband Roger Payne and I found was to listen. Roger and I, <clears throat> interested in whales and antsy with life in the city, went to Bermuda and joined a, a Navy engineer named Frank Watlington in search for whales around the island on a Navy ship. But we had talked about conservation and the threats that faced these animals. And finally, Frank, a, a quiet and shy man, also a musician, said, I don't suppose you've ever heard the sounds these animals make. And what he played for us is what we will now listen to. I urge you to just listen. voice and you hear echoes from the bottom of the waves and the bottom of the sea. And so the song will continue around and around for 
hours and hours. It's an endless cycle. I've listened to that recording uh, a few times now, a couple times on loop, you know? And each time I just find myself going deeper with it. You know, the first time I listened to it start to finish, I approached it purely from a musical perspective. So, you know, I was writing down musical terms, you know, it's like, oh, track one, it kind of sounds like a synth, like, a, like an LFO synth. There's multiphonics. And, uh, you know, high-pitched sounds and slow decays and, right, so, you know, really sort of technical. And then the more I got into it, you know, now when I, when I listen to it, I, I just hear compassion and generosity and, and curiosity. After we heard that, uh, we were so moved that our lives were completely changed forever. It felt to me to listen uh, to these, these tapes, and I made spectrograms and tracings of the spectrograms and uh, realized that the whale was singing a different song as time went on. The focus for me was how can I immerse somebody in a process for a moment of time. I went through many uh, processes, I guess, like mini processes. Um, so where I've, I've been a composer for you know a while now, I, I sort of had my usual sort of strategies like in mind that I would employ. Things like, um, you know, I'll, I'll put together a graphic score or maybe transcribe, you know, some of the whale songs. So I started to do those things and I just had this urge to sit with the whale song and just put the headphones on and listen. In 1976, it went like this. In 1977, in 1978, you see it's longer still, and it ends. Mm. 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 The whole ocean was full of these sounds, and they were different from the way they had been in 1976. Any brass instrument 
the sound, much like singing, the resonating starts with, with your body. In the case of a brass instrument, it's your lips. You know, whereas with, let's say, a woodwind instrument, the vibration is on the mouthpiece itself, right? It's the reed. And so because of that, like, it's probably the closest to singing in a way because the vibration starts with your body. You know, it's not like with humans where we have vocal cords, it's almost like their body is the resonator in a way. In the same way that, you know, an instrument, right, is a resonator and an amplifier at once. And so I guess in the same way, like a whale's body is the same way. So the sound is, there's a part of their body that's vibrating, but then their body's also the resonator, right, uh, in, in a way. for many years, and I made spectrograms in those years, uh, and saw how the parts of the song were changing all the time. Each theme had its own history, and the history was somehow agreed on by all of the singers. And this, you could follow any singing whale and you would find the song was evolving. The thing that struck me uh, and really stuck with me was the sound, so the timbre of their voice, so to speak. And uh, within there, there was, there's so much. There's the texture of it, the range, their vocal range, so to speak. You know, that really uh, struck me. The rhythm, of course, yes, uh, very, very complex. And but then as you dig, deeper and just peel back a few layers it's it's highly complex rhythmically yeah i i feel the the pulsing rhythm the slow rhythm that runs through almost all whale songs regardless of what the notes are it's part of the ocean and it carries you there. Whether there's any intention behind that, I don't know. But we are susceptible to feeling those things. It maybe doesn't translate into something that, you know, you can tap your foot to or, or dance to, but there is a timing and there's a pulse and 
uh, Anthony Braxton, for example, he talks about body time, right? And sort of, you know, what is your, your pulse, right? And how does everything relate to that? It's definitely how I approached it with, with this piece, was this idea of body time and pulse and movement. How do you accomplish that without a drummer providing that for you? Every now and then you feel they're in synchrony, but then you find that they're diverging. <laughs> as if each one was on its own separate track. For me, it was like, how do I create that feeling of hearing and receiving your sound in a space like the ocean, right? But in headphones. When I played the trumpet, I imagined being in a large reverberant space, whether that's the ocean or a big cave, right? But just uh, a space where I could receive the sound that I was sending out. Improvising, they're listening, they're imitating. Every part of the song had its history, and all the whales were agreeing on what that history was. It was a, a jazz experience. When I think of improvised jazz, I tend to go to, I think of, uh, there was an interview that Coltrane did, and I'm going to paraphrase it as best as I can, where I think the person asked him, why are you so angry when, when you play? And you'd say, well, no, I'm, I'm not angry. Like this, this music is, you know, it's love, you know, I, I'm expressing love and joy. And this is joy, you know, it's joy to be able to make music and to, to put this out into the world. And so that's probably what I hear more than anything is is joy in in it, right? A joy and a and a generosity. Yeah. And I think that transcends genre ultimately. Yeah. Each population makes two long migrations. In the North Atlantic it's 1300 miles between the cold polar waters where they feed and the warm tropical waters where they court and mate and give birth. And it's in those tropical waters chiefly that they do their singing. The song acts as a floating territory. It's kind of like bird song. If you think deep down in the ocean you can't really see down there. And so part of it is necessity. So they use sound to, to navigate, right? And so I started thinking about my ancestors and their travels, you know, over the ocean to Guyana from South India, how, you know, maybe lonely, 
confusing, disorienting that might be. I don't know a lot about my ancestors, shamefully enough, but I do know that they were brought over by the British, you know, from South India. And I just imagine, um, you know, that they were on this journey, so they know they were going to this other land. I just imagine, you know, spending all that time out at sea, no land in sight. So yeah, I almost imagine it like parallel worlds where whales are, you know, they're migrating. It was just a, a moment for me, like a nice moment to sort of imagine that. You know, it's a mystery. That's the wonderful thing. Uh, there are parts of some of the songs that make you sad or that make you happy as a person, but we don't know about the the emotions in the whales. We mm -hmm. simply don't know. The title of the piece, so camus, uh, which is, uh, it's a Finnish word, doesn't have uh, a direct translation to English, but the closest it's uh, is polar night, uh, and it's the term that they give to the shortest day or the longest night of the year. And it's a time where people tend to get very insular, reflective, uh, it can sometimes be a, a sad time of year. I chose that title because I'm, I'm always interested in words in other languages that don't have a direct translation. That was something that really that kind of stood out to me in, in this whole process of whale song. Like, we don't know why they sing, what the meaning is in the song. It's a wonderful mystery. I think after, you know, sitting with the workshop, it became sort of very personal, for lack of a better term. Um, I've just understood that on a deeper level that there's so much I don't know. And that's, that's wonderful because it means there's so much more to learn. And the way to learn those things is to listen just to stop, like it's, it's okay. Like the act of listening is the act of doing something. Yeah, I think that's something I, I wanna carry forward in not just in any music endeavors, but, but in all, all areas of my life, I guess. That doc was produced by Veronica Simmons. It was edited by me, A.C. Rowe. Special thanks to Johnny Spence for his help recording the workshop. 
The Whale Song Workshop was part of the 2020 Nocturne Art at Night Festival in Halifax. To hear Nicole's three-part whale-inspired composition, Camos, in full, head over to our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. There you can find a link to the music created in the workshop by Nicole and the other musicians. Okay, coming up from Wales, we go to Wolves. Hi, I'm Caitlin Prest, and I am here in your ear to tell you about a very incredible new show called Asking For It. Asking For It is a darkly comedic series that follows a queer femme singer whose history of violence finds her no matter how many times she runs away. It has an original soundtrack, and it'll make you laugh, cry, and feel a little bit less alone. Asking for it. Subscribe now. Banff, Alberta, has an on-again, off-again relationship with wolves. They were nearly wiped from the area around the town in the 1920s, back again by the 30s, Then they were wiped in the 1950s, then back again in the 80s. While in other parts of Banff National Park, wolves are, if not thriving, definitely surviving in healthy numbers. This particular pack, the Bow Valley Wolf Pack, who live near the town, they've been struggling to survive for over a century. 2016 was a remarkably bad year, when their numbers plummeted from nine to three. So what's going on? Producer Molly Siegel lives in Banff, and she's been following this pack for as long as she's been there. This story originally broadcast back in March of 2017, and at the end, I'll give you an update on how the Bow Valley wolves have fared since, exactly four years and a global pandemic later. Molly will take it from here. It's nighttime. A pack of wolves looks for food. One wolf guards the new pups at the den, their home. If you look closely, you might see a pair of eyes glowing in the dark. The wolf will smell its prey first, upwind, kilometers away. Elk. Deer, sheep, moose, a wolf will know. They move closer. Wolves can see at night. They work in tandem to isolate a small elk from the herd. One pursues. Another finishes the attack. Today, a feast. But wolves aren't always successful. It could be a week before they kill again. For now, they must make the most of this. Two days ago, my staff uh, went in and and, um, picked up uh, an elk calf that had been killed by the wolves in that area. Uh, They got a good feed out of it. Uh, The two younger animals had 
um, had taken down a small elk. And it just shows that uh, it's great that they're focusing on, on wild, healthy food, but they are hunting very close to town, and so it's something we keep an eye on as well. So my name is Bill Hunt. I'm the Resource Conservation Manager here in Banff. We're standing at the Mount Norquay entrance to Banff, and this is a, a classic sort of pinch point where just to our south here, we've got the Bow River, we've got the railway tracks, and then there's a little bit of land with a very busy access road, and then you're into the Trans-Canada and the very steep slopes of Mount Norquay. Wolves, elk, cougars, bears, everything uh, will be crossing these roads. And so there's, there's signage on the way in and out of these roads to remind you that you do need to, to watch for wildlife. We'll just sip uh, up Vermilion Lakes and have a look there. Wolves were here long before we called this landscape Banff National Park. In these mountains, the Bow Valley is lush with wildlife. This valley is also where settlers built the town of Banff. Different wolf packs have lived and died out or left the area near the town. A family of wolves can mark more than 2,500 square kilometers of territory. It's only about 25 kilometers from the town to Johnston Canyon. Glacial water rushes through the limestone rock faces. I want a really good <laughs> On a busy day, the parking lot will overflow onto the scenic Bow Valley Parkway. It's winter. The buzz of tourists is gone. It's closed for construction. A group of people works here daily. They throw construction materials into a large bin. One day, someone throws food in the bin. Uh, at, at Johnson Canyon uh, day use area, uh, there was a construction bin that people threw food garbage into, not realizing that it wasn't a, a bear-proof garbage bin. And eventually the wolves received food rewards from that bin. Uh, and so that's the first incident we're aware of where they were, you know, clearly received a food reward that they would link with human use. And, and from that, it was a series of, of uh, interactions where they were becoming increasingly bold. So here we are at the, this is the sort of the start of the third Vermilion Lake, a series of three uh, shallow wetlands uh, along the west end of Banff. These wolves can walk up to a set of tracks, sniff the track on the left, sniff the track on the right and tell which way an animal was walking. That's how sharp their noses are. And so if you think they can't smell everything in your campsite, like when a wolf goes past a campground, it's got to be just a feast for their nose. And so it's really important that, that they can smell all that, but as long as they're not getting a food reward from it, they typically won't become food condition. When the snow melts, the campground on Tunnel Mountain in the town of Banff starts to fill with people. It's not quite summer, but still, it's busy. 
A wolf can hear a noise 10 kilometers away or further. At a campground, a wolf can smell every roasted marshmallow on the fire. But their noses are even better than that. They'll also smell a sandwich left on a picnic table or an empty chip bag discarded on the ground. Scrounging leftovers is easier than hunting. The wolf is resourceful. One of the wolves is the alpha female, the lead female, or mother if you're one of her pups. She moves in closer. The, the one that really um, was a red flag for us was when the, the lead female came into the cam- uh, campground and, and actually pushed people away from their site to access a cooler. And so that's an indication of an animal that probably in between there or prior to that had also been, been fed, physically fed by people. Once we'd realized that, uh, that it was the adult female that was often uh, being the ringleader in, these, in these, a lot of these instances based on coloration and, and detailed descriptions, um, we came to the conclusion that if we were to remove her, it provided the, the balance of the pack, sort of the best opportunity of, of shifting away from the food-conditioned behavior. We were really concerned that she was going to pass that on to the three yearlings. And so that became our strategy. So she was the, the first wolf that we removed. We have teams of wildlife specialists that are, are you know, practiced and trained in, in the safe and, and humane euthanization, and that's what they do. They go out and shoot the wolf. A wolf, the alpha female, the mother of at least four pups, one of the pack leaders who stole food from a campground. It's definitely a sad day. It's something that's really hard on the on the staff, the team that has worked so hard to prevent uh, uh, finding ourselves in that situation. But uh, you know, visitor safety uh, is a key priority for Parks Canada, and and in this case, uh, we were hopeful that by removing that individual, uh, we could save the balance of the pack. When I started hearing about these new wolves showing up and also getting in the news with garbage and such, I thought, okay, that's, that's not going to last very long. And when I heard that one of the wolves kind of stole the bread from a cooler and stuff, I thought, that's, okay, that's the end of the story. If I like it or not, that they're going to shoot her. So my name is Peter Detling. I'm a professional nature photographer and author of the book, The Wheel of the Land. Uh, and that book, I kind of uh, describe my experiences with the Banff Bow Valley Wolves between 2005 and 2010. Early in the morning, so just barrel went up, 8 o'clock, and it's minus 19. Uh, and we have uh, probably 20 centimeters of snow on the, on the Bow Valley Parkway. And except this first car, I think, was Parks Canada car that drove in before the barrier was up. Um, we are the first one to drive onto this uh, uh, snow-covered road. So this is kind of a known crossing point. I was able to document one of the most exciting happenings of, as a nature photographer as one can just imagine. 
like a fight of one grizzly bear with those with the whole Bow Valley wolves over a period of four days. It was absolutely magnificent. I will never probably see something like that. One year later, most of those animals that I photographed fighting each other uh, were dead and were killed on the highway or on the on the railway, including the bear. And I just couldn't handle that, so I, uh, that's why I start, stopped coming to the, to the Banff Bow Valley. Uh, and today is one of the very few times I've been in the Bow Valley since, since 2010, to be honest. A pack of wolves travels through the trees, dodges cars on the road, through more trees. The alpha female, the pack's mother, is dead. Without her, the dynamic among the wolves is shifting. But wolves will always find the most efficient route. There's a clearing along the course of the river. Rail tracks run through this clearing. Trains shuttle back and forth on these tracks. For wolves, these paths are also a quicker route to travel through the valley. The track winds its way through the mountains near the Bow River. Around a corner, it sounds so distant, you might not even think it's close. The wolves jump off the tracks. But one wolf pup doesn't. There's no surprise that the pups and that the rest of the family didn't fare well after the mother died. Every wolf is essential to that family. All right, well, welcome here, everybody. I am Chuck. I'll be your interpreter. So we are right now at the Northern Lights Wildlife Wolf Education Centre in Golden, B.C., um, it's an educational facility that houses captive wolves and teaches people about their role in the environment as well as some of the major conservation issues they're facing right now. Do you guys have any idea what 8 to 10 wolves may eat in the wild? My name is Sadie Parr. I am the executive director of nonprofit organization called Wolf Awareness. And I do a lot. Um, <laughs> I wear many different hats. They will eat grasses and berries and flowers. They so a lot of my time is filled with field research with wolves and educating everything from, you know, students in a classroom to the general public using informed advocacy that's science-based and, and all current. Once I graduated um, from the University of Guelph, I moved out to our mountain national parks and started experiencing them firsthand. And I've always been fascinated by wild animals and wild places, but this was a place where I could just be part of the environment and slow down. I think a big part of it was witnessing my first wolf living in Yoho. It was on the flats of the Kicking Horse River in Yoho National Park and it was probably about midday and I noticed it simply because it was howling and the voice, the sound was obviously the, the true call of the wild. It touches your heart. 
And this animal was changing direction, so it would call out in one direction, possibly wait for a response, and then turn its body and call in another direction. So my thoughts went instantly to its family, um, whether it had one or not, if it was searching for a mate, if it was searching for family members that it had been separated from. I just wanted to know more about what its story was. Um, It obviously had one to tell. It was shocking how much character and strength was embodied by this animal. That's what drove me to want to learn more and more and more about these animals. The real kind of slap in the face change moment, I would say, came when I went to an open house at the Northern Lights Wildlife Wolf Center. Wolves are known as a keystone species, an umbrella species and a bioindicator species. That was when I realized and got the full story on how highly persecuted and mistreated these animals are, um, regardless of their intelligence, their social nature, their playfulness, their very valuable role to maintaining balance and biodiversity. They're basically treated as rats. When you think about a bridge or an archway that we, as humans, build with stones, we call the center stone a keystone. It's the one holding the whole bridge up. What happens to that bridge if you take the keystone out? It falls, of course. Now, that's what happens if you take the wolf out of an environment. The environment collapses. So it becomes very important to make sure that there is a place where these animals can live uninterrupted by humans, as nature intended, as family units, and with multiple families. There are at least seven wolves. Another train. At least three pups are left on the tracks. The tragedy of the mourning and the suffering that goes from losing a friend, losing a loved one, losing somebody that you trust, that you play with, that protects you, that helps provide for you and nourish you. That can't be replaced uh, just with another number. In July, the campgrounds are full small villages of tents in the trees. The Bow Valley Wolf Pack explores. By now, these wolves know they'll catch the scent of food where people gather. Some people see them. Sometimes they report the wolves to Parks Canada. Scavenging food or garbage may be resourceful to a wolf. But the wolf can't realize that some people will see this act differently. Food conditioned. One of the wolves tears into garbage people leave out at their campsite. Those people will face charges. But for this wolf, it's too late.
When I first heard the second wolf had been killed by Parks, it was it was a moral blow. Um, it really meant there was even less hope for the young, inexperienced ones. They had suffered another loss of a family member. My heart really goes out to, and my thoughts go to the survivors, um, seeing and having their family members killed one by one. You know, probably the scientist teacher will tell you, stay away from that. You don't want to get too close and too attached to it. But, you know, I'm an artist. And I think we need some more emotional connections to the natural world. Otherwise, if you just talk about numbers and stuff, it's not good enough. You don't get really attached. You need this kind of human connection to it. A helicopter hovers above the wolves. A net drops. Three wolves are left in the pack now. Two males and one female. This time, two of the wolves get caught in the net. It happens quickly, and when they're released, the two have collars. These collars will send signals about where they travel. By March, the third will also have a collar around its neck. Humans are the only thing that is causing the hurt and the harm, whether it's directly through targeting and persecuting these animals or indirectly through constantly taking over their areas. I don't know that that we can fix it for wolves in this area. I hate to say that, um, but what is Parks willing to do? Most upper decisions are made in regards to tourism. And that seems to be the priority. You know, you'll hear a lot of concerns about the number of visitors coming to Banff. And I think that's a really misguided concern. Uh, It isn't the number of visitors, it's the behavior of the visitors that are coming. And so through education, through enforcement, through compliance, through awareness, appreciation, understanding, if people understand uh, their impacts and they appreciate the ecosystems that they're coming here to see, uh, we can get their support in behaving appropriately when they're in the national parks. But if people aren't coming and enjoying and learning from their national parks, then we've failed. And our challenge remains with that Bow Valley Pack is, is the interaction between people and the wolf pack and making sure that those visitors uh, behave in a way that's consistent with maintaining that pack. Looking to the future for those three wolves, three remaining wolves, they may try to continue on their their survival here, but probably, you know, may they may just um, disappear, and then another wolf family may show up, establish itself, and then the story continues again. And then, uh, for the future, it will be just the same story over and over. And it definitely is a extremely hard place for a wolf to be. It's March, maybe 8.30 in the morning. We leave the Bow Valley Parkway and join the busy Trans-Canada Highway driving into the town of Banff. I look out at this marshy flat near Vermilion Lakes. The sun glares off the snow. And that's when I see it. A dark, backlit, four-legged figure trotting across the flats. A wolf 
in the distance. Producer Molly Siegel. It's been exactly four years since Molly wrapped that story. So earlier this week, she and I caught up on how the Bow Valley wolves have fared since. So Molly, I remember back in March of 2017, just as you were finishing up, you got news about one of the three remaining wolves. I did. Yes. Um, One of the three wolves left Banff, went west, made it into British Columbia, and then was shot by a hunter legally. Um, Yeah. And that didn't become news until right as the documentary was airing. So there were only two wolves left at that point. So what happened to those two wolves? Is there a Bow Valley wolf pack now? I actually had to do some uh, digging to see what I could find out because there is a wolf pack currently. But my question was, you know, where did they come from? Are they the same wolves? And back in September of 2017, so, you know, maybe half a year after this documentary aired, there were reports that the two remaining wolves, which was an adult male and his daughter, had left the Bow Valley. Um, The male left and joined another pack in Banff National Park, which is not uncommon. Wolves have really complex social lives and, you know, leave and form new packs and join other packs all the time. So that was not surprising, I think, to the biologists. And the female wolf, 1701, because she was collared, that was what the biologists were calling her. Um, She left too. And the biologists didn't really know what was going to happen with her. And then something surprising happened. Um, In the spring of 2018, biologists in Banff started to see her again. And they thought, oh, that's interesting. But this time, she was with a guy. She had what they call a breeding male. (laughs) (laughs) So she'd gone out and she'd found herself a mate and then brought him home. Exactly. Yeah. And this is wildly anthropomorphizing. Um, Biologists might shake their heads if they hear this. But I sort of imagine it like, you know, she's young. The pack's kind of falling apart. She's like, I want to get out of my hometown, goes searching for a while, finds a dude, and then decides to come back because after all, her hometown maybe has some good things going for it, I guess. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it has like a good school system. And <laughs> yeah, she decided to come back home, take over the old family house. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's exactly how we can imagine it, because this is a place that wolves return to and make their home. Do we know if uh, if they had pups? Yes. They had pups. And so the wolf pack was reestablishing, like biologists were saying it was healthy. Um, But as we know from the documentary. Oh, no. Yeah. It's a challenging place for wolves to live. You know, there's the two highways, there's a railway line, and there's a lot of people. And the pack is still healthy, but they've taken a hit even in the, the past couple years. You know, a couple of them have been uh, struck by cars on the highway. And sadly, the alpha male, her mate, that guy she brought back with her, he was one of those wolves that was hit by a car in May 2020. Um, And then last month, another wolf was hit by a train. And then this month, 
one of the wolves actually left Banff. And this wolf traveled all the way down to Montana. And the biologists know this because they had a, a GPS collar on it, sending them all this information. But that wolf was shot by someone in Montana, um, which was legal. This was a legal death. This wolf was on their property. Um, but yeah, I, th I think it just illustrates that when you look at the details of the story, it's really clear that, you know, not a lot of wolves die a natural death, right? Like we, we do have a very big impact on how they die. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for a lot of wildlife, the pandemic has made a difference. I mean, we've heard about fish and dolphins returning um, because of the absence of people. Have we seen any version of that in Banff over the past year? where people have gone away and the wolves have regenerated a bit? Um, I, I did ask Parks Canada this, and there's no indication what impact the pandemic has had on wolves in Banff. Um, you know, they, they may be looking at numbers and, and, and data, but there's, n there's no clear link right now. I will say anecdotally, because I, I live here, um, you know, that the park's still being used. There's not international travelers. But, you know, Canadians, uh, people from Alberta and elsewhere are still using the park and enjoying it. And, and Parks Canada still has to watch for the same issues, right? Trying to make sure that people are aware that they're sharing this space with wildlife, including wolves, um, trying to educate people to not leave their food out at campsites and store their garbage safely, right? So that wolves don't end up being shot Mm-hmm. From coming into the park and getting too close to people. So when we left this story four years ago, there were three Bow Valley wolves and that quickly went down to two shortly after, just while you were wrapping up. Do we know how many wolves are in the park now? In the park, there's a, there is like a, a healthy population population of wolves overall. They take up a lot of space and, and they like their separate spaces. So there's wolves that really have not a lot of interaction with people. The wolves that, that we're more familiar with, this Bow Valley pack that lives really close to the town of Banff, is currently six, uh, six wolves. Three pups from last year and two older pups who are essentially just adult wolves. And uh, the mother, the alpha female, who has returned back and is raising her family. She's the head of the pack now that's existing near the town. Molly Siegel is a producer with CBC's What on Earth. You can find that podcast wherever you're listening to this one. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Veronica Simmons, Allison Cook, Sherry Okeke, Tanera McLean, and me. Althea Manassan is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren. And our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.